Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to John 21. John 21. Do you know that Jesus cares for you? You know how much he loves you? I hope that today you'll see that in the story that we're going to read. And it's going to take us a while to get to John 21, so just hang tight with me, okay? Well, I promise we'll get there, and I promise we won't be here for several hours, all right? I know I preach a little long sometimes, but I don't preach for hours, all right? Amen? I'm not lying when I say that, right? All right. I'm looking forward to sharing this uh, second week with you in, in our series called Real Christianity. This goes along with a book, and we've, we've discounted our books. They're, they're now $10 a piece, so if you paid $15 last week, we got to give you a $5 rebate. Amen. Pastor Don was able to find them cheaper, so we got a deal, and so we're able to give them to you at, at our cost. We never try to sell those for profit, and so uh, that's, that's the thing that Brother Dwayne was referencing. He was reading chapter 2 in preparation for the message today because this series is based off of this book and off of the thoughts that are shared in each one of these chapters. How many of you have already had a chance to pick up a book? Raise your hand. All right, and hopefully you're able to read ahead a little bit. I was telling someone, this is actually a harder series to prepare for because you already kind of know what I'm going to say. So I got to be on my toes and I got to, you know, surprise you here and there and, and uh, really dig in. And so this series has helped me too. Um, to study even harder. And so I hope that you'll take advantage of this series and the book. Uh, really, this book is going to be a tool that we utilize for years to come in our discipleship ministry. As we see uh, new believers come to know Christ, we're going to take them through this book in a one-on-one -on -one or a small group format. And so we hope that you'll avail yourself of this. So that's the first announcement. Go by the table. We have a book table set up right underneath the missions display. And our GRC team, led by Katie Ruffini, wave at us, Katie. She's our GRC director, Grace Resource Center director. She'll help you out, or we'll have a greeter out there to help you purchase that book. So make sure to pick up that book today. And then also, we do have our small groups meeting today. I'll be leading a small group as well. My group today meets with Scott and Rachel's group. Since they're out, they've asked for me to cover for them. And so we do have the small groups posted on the posters that are around our um, uh, uh, campus, so make sure to take a look at that. We'd love for you to stay 30 to 40 minutes afterwards. You can uh, see on the worship guide, or see in the worship guide on the back, that there's a group of discussion questions that we try to provide each week. And so I hope you had some great conversations last week in our small group. We didn't even get a chance to get through the first question. So it was a great time of just discussing, thinking through what we studied last week. All right, John 21 verses 1 through 17. This is where we're going to be today. And as I said, we'll get there eventually. Um, but let me ask you this question as we start this study. And the title of this study today is The Real Jesus. The Real Jesus. We talked last week about how the word Christian has been twisted, distorted, convoluted. I hope you'll take an opportunity to listen uh, to that message if you missed it, because each one of these kinds of builds on another. And we talked about just how religion itself has distorted Christianity. Christians themselves have been bad representatives of the name Christian. And the culture itself has also, of course, confused and convoluted what it means to be a Christian. And part of that comes from us not really understanding who the real Jesus is. And so today, that's where we're going to be, is we just desire to understand who really was and is Jesus. 
How many of you have ever, in your imagination, thought, I wonder what Jesus looks like physically? Raise your hand if you've ever kind of sat there and wondered, you know, did he have long brown hair? Did he have a, you know, beard? Uh, what color eyes did he have? How dark, what was he, darker complected, lighter complected? You know, if you look at the paintings of Jesus from the Renaissance era, he was evidently a white European, you know? I mean, there's a lot of different thoughts and ideas as to what Jesus looked like. And there's even computer graphic simulations today that have tried to, you know, guesstimate what the face of Jesus looked like. But let me ask you this question, really. Would you recognize Jesus if he was to come in our church today? And I'm not talking about recognizing his physical attributes. I'm talking about would we recognize Jesus for who he is, what his mission was, how he presented truth and engaged with every kind of person. Would we recognize him? And the, even the more important question today is would we receive him rather than reject him? And so those are the questions I want us to think about as we look at this study today. Um, those who claim Christianity as a religion uh, made up by people several years after the fact are honestly just not all that familiar with the actual history of Jesus and how he did not fit the expectations or the traditions of a Jewish religious system at that time. We talked about that last week, how, how even the Jewish religious system was not accepting or receiving of Jesus. He was not the savior that many people expected. They were looking for a political savior. They were looking for a savior that would lead through strength rather than through suffering. They were looking for a savior who would deliver them from all of their momentary cares in this physical life rather than looking for a savior that offered eternal life. And so, uh, and, and so for people who say that Christianity is just a made-up religion, they really don't understand the fact that when Jesus was on this earth, he did not fit the expectation or the mold of what people would have said the job title of Savior included. Um, when, when you think about his death, his burial, and especially his resurrection, those were not a part of the script of the first century disciples. Um, they couldn't have even imagined how Jesus would have to be crucified and then he would actually be resurrected. And we studied a couple of weeks ago at Easter, or just before Easter, how the disciples were really, when they first heard about the fact that the tomb was empty and that Jesus had risen, they thought that the ladies were crazy. You know, they, they didn't believe them. They had to go see it for themselves. And so when we think about all that, what we're going to see in this message today is we're going to try to see through all the religious clutter that unfortunately clouds our understanding of who the real Jesus is, and see him for who he is in all of his glory. The greatest thing that you and I need on a regular basis is to see him afresh and anew. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so my prayer today is that you and me, that we would see Jesus see him for who he is and what he's done for us and how he desires to not conform us but transform us through the power of his gospel, through the truth of his love, through the beauty of his grace. You see, the beauty of God's grace transforms people. Beauty, true beauty, transforms people. And that's my prayer today is that the beauty of who Jesus is as we go through this study 
we captivate you, call you, convert you if you need converting, encourage you, strengthen you. So, it was about 33 AD. You can see your introduction there. It's about 33 AD. The course of human history is being altered by events that are unfolding. The Roman Empire is ruling this part of the world. The nation of Israel, a people who pride themselves in their national identity as God's chosen people, they are begrudgingly tolerating the Roman occupation in their area. The Roman government is begrudgingly tolerating the Jewish way of life and worship. Jerusalem is this melting pot of ethnicities as a re regional center of culture, commerce, and travel. To make matters worse, Jewish religious politics are complicated. Uh, there's different sects within the Jewish religion. You've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you've got all their extra rules that they've added on top of God's law. And they had misunderstood the whole purpose of God's law. God's law was given to show them a need for a Savior, not to make themselves the Savior through their own self-righteous efforts, trying to live according to the law. And so you had Jewish religious uh, politics. They were complicated and divided. Judaism had morphed into a spider web of different sects, each with their own leaders, endless laws, power struggles. These leaders had, had greatly uh, augmented their system of religious laws and sacred observances to the point of oppressing the common people. Uh, they had strong religious stranglehold on the Jewish population. Rome wanted world dominance, and Jewish leaders uh, wanted control of Israel, and the Jewish people wanted freedom from both the Jewish uh, religious leaders who were oppressing them and also Rome who was oppressing them. And in that culture and context enters Jesus. That's, that's what he enters into. And so if you and I had lived at the time of Jesus, would we have even recognized the real Jesus? And in that understanding, once we recognized him, how would we have responded to him? Would we reject him or would we receive him? And so what are some of the truths about the life of Jesus that would have made it a challenge for us to recognize him and receive him? And how do these truths still catch people off guard today? As I was telling you last week, I've had several conversations with people who are not believers, both folks who grew up in church and kind of rejected the whole religious structure, and those who have never even been in church and who don't want anything to do with God. And I told you last week that Oftentimes, when I get to talking with them and having a conversation with them, what they reveal to me is they've rejected who they think the Jesus is of the Bible. And it's twisted, it's convoluted, or they've just got a piece of the revelation of God, and they're rejecting a caricature or an incomplete picture. And so today, the reason that we need to study this is because when you see the real Jesus for who he is, how can we not receive him? because of what he's done for us. And so with that thought, let's look at these four truths, shall we? What are four truths about the life of Jesus that would have made it a challenge for us to receive him, recognize him and receive him, and how do these things still catch us off guard today? Number one, an unexpected Savior. As I've already mentioned, Jesus was not the Savior that most people expected during that time. Um... In fact, most of his disciples were following him thinking, all right, he's going to bring right in the kingdom and we're going to have special seats with him. And they were even arguing about this on the night he was going to be betrayed and sent to crucifixion. They were arguing about who was going to get the honored seats in his kingdom. They still had this earthly kingdom on their mind that Jesus was going to step right in and he was going to overthrow Rome. He was going to establish the millennial reign and, and, and this is what he was going to do. He was an unexpected savior. 
Jesus caught people off guard, even religious people who knew the Old Testament well. They didn't recognize him because of how he arrived. I mean, think about his birth, how he arrived. I mean, he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stall. He was born in a manger. Um, Think about his upbringing, Joseph, a humble carpenter. Um, And so you think about just the entire life of Jesus. Now, there's four truths here I want to share with you, and these are from the book. Number one, his teaching was profound. His teaching was profound. It caught people off guard. Look at these verses. Mark 1, it says, And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Now, isn't that interesting? Already, if you read this verse, you get an idea that Jesus wasn't going to line up with the current religious political structure of his day because the scribes were some of those religious people. They were the, they were the religious teachers of that day. But there was something about Jesus' teaching that caught people off guard. It wasn't expected. He taught them as one having exousia, authority, power. His words had impact. People were captivated by his words. It says, and all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Do you see it? They're like, this is the son of a carpenter. And he's speaking these words. This was actually in his hometown of Nazareth. And he read the Isaiah scroll, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3a. And he he read these verses. And then he closed it. And they wondered at the gracious words. And so you see that Jesus was an unexpected savior in the fact that his teachings were profound. They didn't expect these teachings to come from the son of a carpenter, someone who was born in a stable outside of Bethlehem. This caught them off guard. And we're going somewhere with this this idea of expectation, so hold tightly, all right? Number two, with this idea of unexpected Savior, his, his works were powerful. His works were powerful. Look at these verses. It says in Matthew 14, 14, And Jesus went forth, and saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion toward them. There again is a picture of your Savior. There's a picture of who Jesus is. Jesus was always being moved with compassion for people, both in their physical needs here as he healed their sick, but also Jesus was moved with compassion as he wept over the city of Jerusalem, as he looked there from the Mount of Olives over the city, and he wept and said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how I would have longed to have gathered thee together, but you would not. You see, God, in his loving kindness, was trying to draw Israel, was trying to draw his people. Yes, Israel, but also the entire world, he was trying to draw. And he wept. He had great compassion. And notice that in this compassion, it led him to demonstrate his power, that he could conquer physical sickness. And so he healed their sick. He was healing people. His works were powerful. Mark 6, verse 33, And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither. I like that good old English word, thither. Everybody say that. One, two, three, thither. There you go. You learned a good word today. Ran, ran, ran afoot thither out of all the cities, and out went them, and came together unto him. What, what's this saying? Jesus was doing these amazing works. People were here about him. Hearing, hearing about it, if there had been social media back then, there would have been some hashtags trending. I mean, Jesus was, the fame was spreading. His works were powerful. And again, this caught people off guard. It caught the religious rulers off guard. They're like, how could a man do this unless he be from God? You see, this wasn't computing for them. So his teachings were profound. His works were powerful. Number three, his love was incomparable. 
I already mentioned that a little bit in his compassion. His love was incomparable. Luke 15, 1 through 2 says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Publicans, those were the tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors for Rome. So the occupying nation who was occupying Israel, these tax collectors were Jewish people. They were sellouts, basically, and they were collecting tribute and taxes for Rome. They were not liked by most of the Jewish people. They were very much disregarded and despised. And sinners, we know the kind of sinners that Jesus ministered to. Women who had been married five times. Women who were possessed of five, six, seven devils who were living questionable lifestyles. Um, Tax cheats who were sitting up in a tree just hoping to catch a glimpse of Jesus. All different kinds of people Jesus ministered to. Why? I think it's because these people knew that Jesus loved them. That Jesus wanted to be with them. Isn't that amazing? Sinners were drawn to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, of course, they murmured. You know, the religious people, they murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, eating with someone in this time period was a very big sign of um, uh, acceptance, of, of um, wanting to be associated with someone. And so Jesus' love, he did not let someone's past or someone's present get in the way of his love because he knew that his love could change their future. How about you today, friend? You might come in here and you might say, my past, it's a mess. I'm not proud of it. I'm ashamed of it. I'm sure that many of these folks who encountered Jesus were having thoughts of shame and guilt, but, but yet Jesus was looking past their past. He was even looking past their present. You know, he said to the woman at the well, hey, I know that the guy you're living with right now isn't, isn't even your husband. You've had five. But if you knew the water that I had to give you, you wouldn't, stop, you wouldn't keep coming back to this well to try to get your thirst quenched. You see, so, so, so Jesus looked past people's past. He looked past people's present because he knew that his incomparable love could change them. And I'm telling you today, my brother, my sister, friend, if you're here, I'm telling you today that God's love can transform your future. This was who Jesus was. Do you see these wonderful truths? Those who failed miserably at religion were captivated and loved by Jesus. Here's the proof. As God, he showed that holiness was not incompatible with compassion, grace, and mercy. What a truth that that is, if we can grasp hold of that. Because you have extremes today on both sides, right? You have Christians who are so holy that they have no compassion and mercy and love. And then you have some Christians who are so loving and merciful that they have no idea of holiness. But, but we see in the life of Jesus this perfect combination of holiness, compassion, mercy, grace, and love. That's what you see in his life. His love was incomparable. His teaching was profound. His works were powerful. And then finally, with an unexpected Savior, his claims were confrontational. His claims were confrontational. Look at Luke 11, verses 45, 46. I don't know if I have that up there, actually. That's a misprint here. Look at Luke 11. Turn there in your Bibles. I want you to read this verse. Luke 11, verses 45 through 46. <clears throat> Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying, Thou reproachest us also. 
And he said, this is Jesus talking to the religious leaders, the lawyers. Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Uh, Jesus made some confrontational statements. He certainly claimed to be God, the Son of God. He proved to be God through his miracles and through his works. I would say he also proved to be God through these gracious, authoritative, powerful teachings that he proclaimed. And yet his claims were confrontational. The claims of his deity were confrontational to the Jews. They, how could God become human flesh? See, that's the wondrous mystery we were singing about earlier. How could God become flesh? Well, the only way that God could rescue humanity was for himself to become a human being. And the Bible refers to him as the last Adam. In fact, we sing about that again in two of our songs today. Behold the true and better Adam. And in him, in the last Adam, we have everlasting life. In the first Adam, we have everlasting death. But in the last Adam, we have everlasting life. And so Jesus claimed to be this true and better Adam, the Son of God. And so his claims were confrontational. There's a verse at the very beginning of the book of John, John chapter 1, verse 11, which says, He came into his own, and his own received him not. Now, this isn't in the book. This is just extra. As I was meditating upon this, I was just so mesmerized. How could the people who should have known Jesus best miss him? How do we apply this today? How could people in a church who grew up in church, if Jesus was to walk through those doors, would we recognize him? And if we recognized him, would we receive him? Because this, this truth hit me. Why is it that he came into the people who should have recognized him the easiest and received him the quickest? Why is it that they rejected Jesus? Let me give you a few reasons. Write these down. I think there's some blanks there in your, in your handout. Number one, he challenged their religious system that they had twisted. He challenged their religious system that they had twisted. We've already read a couple of verses about that. But over and over, Jesus would challenge the religious leaders of that day that they had taken God's law, which was to be a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ, and they had taken God's law and made it the be-all, end-all of a religious system. And perhaps you're here today and you think that what Christianity is is this religious system of control. It's not that. It's actually a living relationship of transformation. And God's love transforms far better than any law could ever do. The law could only show us our problem. It could only diagnose us. But it's only the great physician that can transform us and change us from the inside out. And so Jesus, the real Jesus, was really confrontational with the religious systems that the Pharisees, the scribes, all these people had twisted. And he confronts that over and over in the Gospels if you read them. And so he challenged. So why did they reject him? Because he challenged them because they had twisted the religious system of that day. Number two, as we've already mentioned, he associated with the people they had rejected. He associated with the people that they had rejected. Luke 15, verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, this is a verse we read earlier, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know you're uh, reflecting the real Jesus in your life when you receive sinners and eat with them. 
and you create a, confron- a, 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 a conversation amongst the religious elite. Oh, did you, did you hear who's going to that church? Yeah, can't believe it. Good. Because that means we're actually reaching people with the gospel and the truth. And we're seeing their lives transformed. You see? Jesus, Jesus, this is who the real Jesus was. Now, you might have an idea of some other Jesus, but the real Jesus, he accepted or received the people they rejected. Now, he didn't receive their sin. We know this over and over again. Holiness, compassion, grace, and love all were perfectly revealed in Jesus. And so when sinners and uh, in, when, when sinners had an encounter with Jesus, they left changed. It's incredible to see. And so why did he get rejected? Because he challenged the religious system they had twisted. He associated with, with the people that they had rejected. Number three, he presented new understandings and interpretations of the scripture that left them insulted. Have you ever believed something about the Bible that you thought was true? And then you kind of put your neck out there and went out on a limb and said, oh, yeah, yeah, this, this. And then you found out later you were wrong. Raise your hand if that's ever been you. Jesus was taking the Old Testament, and he was showing how the Old Testament, all of it, was pointing to him. And that highly insulted the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the religious elite. How do we respond? When perhaps, it's not that God's going to give new revelation, all the revelation is already there, we have the word of God in our hands, but, but have you ever been reading God's word? And I pray that this is all of us as we grow, as we start to understand things afresh and anew. Martin Luther in 1517, Romans 117 had been there for hundreds and thousands of years, But when Martin Luther read that verse, it wasn't a new revelation, but it was, aha, a new understanding. And what Jesus did is he came in to this system and he said, here's what you say about these texts, but here's what I'm here to tell you. Here's the truth of them. And that insulted people. You mean, you know more than, you mean I've grown up, Jesus, I've grown up in this. How could I miss this? And that insulted them. That's why they rejected him. He even said, and this was some strong language Jesus used, but he said this. He said this about the religious leaders. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Jesus was hard on religion that oppressed people. And again, like I said last week, the word religion in the Bible, if you study it, it's only mentioned one time in a positive light. That's James 1.27. Every other time the word religion comes up, it's in a negative connotation and context. So again, when we talk about religion around here, we're talking about the systems that man has created and that Satan has used and twisted to try to say that we can earn our way to God's good graces and we better do enough and earn enough so that we stay there. Well, that's not salvation. That's a lie. And I'm so thankful that Jesus came to share the truth. Jesus confronted this, and so this insulted the religious leaders of his day. And so he came into his own, and his own received him not. And then finally, he confronted their true heart issues and exposed their outward illusions of righteousness. Self-righteous individuals do not like being exposed. 
Because when they are exposed, their entire system of justification crumbles around them. Their whole reason for why they've lived crumbles, and their whole identity around who they've built themselves to be crumbles. And this is what Jesus did. He shattered any hopes of earning God's grace through keeping the law. If there was any nail in the coffin of that, it should have been people who were listening pretty closely to the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll perish. And so, this is why people did not receive Jesus. Because he confronted the true heart issues. He saw through those things. He said, these people draw nigh to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so, the mission of Jesus is to transform people's hearts. Because when he transforms the heart, he captivates the life, and the life follows, the behavior follows. But it starts with a transformed heart. It starts with a belief. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited graves, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but are full within, full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. And so this was an unexpected Savior. Jesus totally blew the doors off what the Jew in the first century thought a Savior, a Messiah would be. And so here's my question to us. Have we placed expectations on God that do not line up with what he's revealed in his word? If Jesus was to walk in today would we recognize him or would we miss him because of the wrong expectations, the wrong understandings, the wrong interpretations of Scripture that we have built a whole system around? And we would not only not recognize him, but we might actually be a part of the crowd that rejected him. What are our expectations? Do we have an accurate portrait of who Jesus is? Oh, this is the prayer of our ministry that we would see Jesus for who he is. And there's a lot more in that chapter, in chapter 2, that you can read about this unexpected Savior. And so we see, number one, an unexpected Savior. This is why many people did not recognize Jesus, because the way he came and the way he ministered and the truth he taught, it was all what they didn't expect. Number two, an unrealized dream. You see, these disciples specifically thought that, 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 that Jesus was going to establish the kingdom again. He was going to fulfill one of those prophecies that God gave to David. And ultimately, Jesus has and will fulfill that prophecy. Has and will. Because it's technically, yeah. Uh, but, but in their mind, because of these expectations... Number, number two, then their dreams for who Jesus would be became unrealized. They were actually crushed. I mean, let's just rehearse the life of Jesus here for a moment as he finished his earthly ministry. Number one, we see this murderous conspiracy where, where Judas, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, and you have to ask yourself the question, why is it that Judas got so mad that he would end up betraying Jesus. And there's probably a lot of thoughts about this, but I think one reason Judas got so mad at Jesus is because Judas thought Jesus was going to be that political savior. And so Judas's expectations upon Jesus's life, Judas wasn't looking for a, for a spiritual savior. He was looking for a physical savior. And so we see this murderous conspiracy hatch between Judas 
and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And we see that Judas came into the garden at night and betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Then we see that Jesus goes and, and, he's, and he's betrayed by one of his closest followers. And, and of course, he goes to this mock trial in the middle of the night. And then he goes before the people and they cry aloud, crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus. Of course, at this time, all the disciples had fled because they saw that Jesus got arrested. They knew it was coming. They were in hiding for fear of their own life. And so the disciples, their, their dreams were quickly being crushed. They thought that this was going to work out completely different than what was, was actually happening. And so we see the crucified king, and then we see the suffering son of God. So who they thought was going to be king of the Jews is now crucified, and now we see the suffering son of God upon the cross. And we see the words still, those words of graciousness which he had spoken in the synagogue in Nazareth. He was now speaking on a hill of Calvary outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus, in his suffering, was saying things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was crying out, and, and I'm sure that, of course, one of the disciples was there at the foot of the cross, John, with his mother Mary. And, and I'm sure they heard these words ring out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they were probably somewhat confused when they heard that. They're like, what do you mean, forsaken? And then they might have thought about that, that uh, curse in the book of Deuteronomy that says, Cursed is he that hangs on a tree. This is not the way that Jesus was supposed to fulfill all the promises he's made. And now he's this suffering son of God upon the cross, and he cries out these words, some of which might have made sense, but some of which I'm sure left them even further perplexed. Turn with me to Matthew 27 for just a moment. Matthew 27. Matthew 27. I don't have it up on the screen because it's a lengthy portion of Scripture. But Matthew 27, verses 33 through 44, gives us the account of the crucifixion of Jesus. And it goes through, gives all the details. It gives some of the sayings that Jesus said there. Of course, they start to mock him, saying, If you be the Son of God, verse 40, you know, if you be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 42, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will save him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And so you see that Jesus was this suffering um, sacrifice upon the cross, a crucified king, a betrayed savior, this murderous conspiracy. As you follow and you rehearse the life of Jesus, then you see these words from the cross, it is finished. And of course, understanding now the full story, we see how Jesus is that perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, which would take away the sins of the world. And so the moment when Jesus cried, it is finished upon the cross, the veil of the temple rent in two. There was a great earthquake. Of course, darkness had already been there. And he cried to Telestai, it is finished. And Hebrews goes on to say that because of that, because of the perfect finished work of the great high priest, we can now have rest, as Brother Dwayne talked about. We can now live from Jesus rather than trying to work for Jesus. You see, the, the, the Pharisees were trying their whole life to live for God, to earn something. But now we can live from the vine. We can abide in Christ, live from him, through him, for him, to him, with all those prepositions. We can live from Christ now because of what the perfect finished work of the great high priest accomplished for us. He is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus cries, it is finished. 
And then, silence. Again, think about the dreams that the disciples had. And now you have a dead Messiah. Silence. In the disciples' mind and plans, this is not the way it was supposed to be. But in reality, this was the exact way it had to be. This was Jesus' real mission. Not just to save a nation politically, but to rescue humanity spiritually. He revealed this on multiple occasions to his disciples, but they did not recognize it. Look at this. He said to his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and be slain and be raised the third day. This was a teaching that he gave to his disciples. In one ear, out the other. How many of you as parents can identify? <laughs> In one ear, out the other. This is exactly what the, you know, God, God is our father, and he was trying to speak to his children here, to, to, to the disciples, and they didn't get it. It was because their expectations had built unrealistic dreams, and now those dreams are unrealized, they're crushed. Jesus would say this in Matthew 16, 21, and this is a fascinating passage, because he says again, I must suffer many things of the elders, the chief priests, and be killed, and raised the third day. And after he said this, Peter rebuked him. This is the passage where Peter said, Be it not so, Lord, we'll die with you before you die alone. And what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan was actually trying to thwart the true mission of Jesus through an unsuspecting Peter because Peter had unrealistic expectations and misplaced hopes and what Jesus was really here to accomplish. And that's the point. And this is how I want to connect it to us today, folks. Perhaps the reason that we are suffer so much from discouragement, depression, is because our hope is anchored in something other than Jesus Christ and his real mission. Have you ever had dreams that were shattered? Have you ever thought that something was going to turn out one way and it turned out a different way? Do you see that Jesus was about something much bigger than what the disciples could even imagine? And can I just challenge all of us that when we are in our darkest moments and it seems that God is silent, it seems that God is not hearing us, it seems that God is in the grave and, and heaven is not hearing us, can I just challenge you that God might have a bigger plan in, 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 in purpose? He's working a greater good in the midst of your momentary pain in the midst of the dreams that you see as being crushed and unrealized. This is who Jesus was. He was about something bigger than momentary, momentary expectations and dreams. Well, then we see the unbelieving followers. The unbelieving followers. Um, when Jesus rose from the dead, we don't have time to go through all those resurrection passages, but very clearly, it took them a while to believe. We know about the famous doubter, right? Doubting Thomas. But a lot of them doubted. They were still unbelieving. Um, in fact, Jesus would correct a couple of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He would say, you're slow of heart to believe. I wonder how that could be said of us, that we're slow of heart to believe. And so in recent weeks, we've, we, we've studied the depth of the historicity and the veracity, the truth of the resurrection account. And as we discussed in those messages, no one was really expecting a resurrection least of all the followers of Jesus. They, they weren't waiting for a resurrection. Rather, they were in hiding, 
hoping that they would not face a similar fate as, as Jesus had faced. And not only do we see Jesus' followers unbelieving, but this also led them to go back to their old way of life. Of course, the most famous of that is Peter in John 21. And we get to our passage finally. We won't be long here, but look at John 21 for just a moment. Because Jesus would, would confront Peter, not in a hateful or confrontational way, but actually a very loving way, as we're going to see. And in John 21, Jesus would confront his unbelieving followers. Those who, yeah, they might have seen Jesus. There was a couple of appearances already after his resurrection to them. But for some reason, Peter, even after those couple of resurrection appearances where he had already seen Christ, he now makes this decision to go back to fishing. Look at John 21, verse 3. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. Now, you might say, what's wrong with fishing? Pastor, what's wrong with fishing? Is, is God against fishing? No, he's not against fishing. In fact, he wants us to be fishers of men. So he's not against fishing. Um, but fishing was Peter's former way of living. That's how he earned his living. In fact, that's how his father probably earned his living. He had, he had taken on his father's business. But when he became a follower of Jesus, what does the Bible say? It says, they left their nets and followed Jesus. But now Peter's falling back to plan B. How many of us have ever fallen back to plan B? Following Jesus is hard. The expectations that we place upon him are sometimes unrealistic. The dreams that we build are sometimes on sinking sand. And so when our dreams are crushed and when we betray Jesus, deny Jesus, and, and we fall back to plan B, this is what Peter did. He fell back to plan B. And so Peter goes fishing, and they say, we're going to go with you too. See, Peter was a leader. If God's given you the gift of leadership, you're going to influence people whether you like it or not. And Peter was going back to his plan B, and so the, some of the other disciples followed him. And of course, what happens when you try to go back to your plan B and it's not what God has for your life? Look at the end of verse 3. How many of you are fishermen? Raise your hand. How many of you know that this is not a happy statement at the end of verse 3? They caught nothing. I don't know about you, but I'm not a fisherman. I'm a catcherman. Can I get a witness? I, I'm not interested in going for four or five hours and, and fishing. I'm interested in going for four or five hours and catching. Nathan Johnson was telling me they caught uh, four or five crappie yesterday and a couple of bass and ate them. Amen. Good. Um, but, but, but these men caught nothing, and this was their living. This was their living. Look at verse 4. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. They were about 100 yards out from the shoreline. And then Jesus said unto them, Children, have you caught anything? Do you have any meat? And this is how I know that the Bible's true. This is how I know this isn't a made-up story. Because they answered him, no. How many of you, whenever you go fishing and you come home and your wife asks you, uh, how many fish did you catch, baby? The fish stories don't center around you catching nothing. It's just no. They were not happy. They had been toiling all night. Plan B wasn't working either. And then he said unto them, Cast on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. I guess we could say Jesus is the greatest fish finder in the universe. 
And so they cast, and they were not able to draw in for the multitude of fishes. Let me ask you a question. Did they deserve to catch all those fish that day? They had not believed for a while that Jesus had risen, and he had even appeared a couple of times already to them. And now Peter decides to fall back on plan B because clearly following Jesus and serving him isn't going to work. And so he and a couple of his buddies go back to this business that they had left a few years before, and they fish all night. They've caught nothing. And if anything, you would expect Jesus to say, see what plan B does for you, buddy. But Jesus blessed them with a catch that they barely could contain. What is that? That's what that is. Unimaginable grace. This is the part that so many times catches us off guard about Jesus. Let's keep reading. So he gives to them a, a, a catch they didn't deserve. They were unbelieving. They had, they had turned their back and they were going to plan B to try to provide for their family. Verse 7, therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said unto Peter, it's the Lord. John, John knew. So Peter, of course, he jumps in the water with his fisherman's coat on, barely on him, and uh, casts himself in the sweet sea. He swims about 100 yards in. Uh, of course, the, the, the other disciples follow in, in behind, dragging this huge catch that they had gotten. As soon as they were come to the land, they saw a meal that had already been prepared. Look at this. They saw a fire of coals there, fish laid thereon, and bread. And so now Jesus, as another symbol of his unimaginable grace, is now prepared a meal for them. And a meal in that culture meant, I'm at peace with you, I accept you, I want fellowship with you. Even to this day, when they sign peace treaties in the Middle East, they have a meal together. And this is what Jesus was basically trying to say to them. And I love this. One of the most beautiful hymns ever written is based on this next verse. Um, well, verse 12. So they bring in the fishes. And, and in fact, Jesus says, bring the fish which you caught. I guess they were going to have a big old fish fry. And uh, so Simon Peter went up and drew the land, net to the land full of great fishes, 153. And for all that were so many, yet not was the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, here it is, come and dine. Jesus didn't lay out, okay, here's the steps in order for you to get back into my good graces before you can eat with me. These are the laws. These are the rituals that you have to go through to prove to me that you're sorry enough. No, none of that. Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him who he was, knowing that it was the Lord. And there's probably a lot of things going through their head. We don't know the whole story. One day we'll talk to him, right? But they probably didn't say anything either because they're like, Oh, we went back to plan B. What's Jesus going to say to us? And so then Jesus cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. So nobody's talking. People are just chewing. How many of you have loud chewers in your house? Raise your hand. All right. Probably some of the disciples were loud chewers. So that, I mean, imagine you're sitting around a fire. It's crackling. And all you hear is awkward silence, right? How is Jesus going to pierce the awkward silence? How's he going to do it? With an accusation? 
Peter, what are you doing? Not only did you deny me three times, and I was right about that, not only have I appeared to you twice already, now you're going back to fishing? Is that what Jesus did? He did not hurl an accusation. He did not say, I told you so. He asked a question. He asked a question. Verse 15, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? What was the these that Jesus was referring to? Well, those 153 fish, plan B. Simon, do you love me more than this old way of trying to survive and earn a living for your family? Now, when that question was asked, uh, can, can, can you imagine how that pricked the heart of Peter? And it pricked the heart of Peter in a way that was so powerful because look at how Peter responds. He, he says, Yea, Lord, you know that I love you. He saith, and so then, so, so basically Peter's like, Jesus, you know that I love you. And then what does Jesus do? He extends a call and a commission. He says, feed my sheep. Did that sink into Peter? What Jesus was doing in that moment? There were no steps. There was no system that Peter had to go through. He simply needed to see the gracious call that was being extended to him, the fish that he caught that he didn't deserve, the meal that Jesus had prepared for them. And now the question that Jesus was asking is, Peter, do you believe that I love you enough to call you again, to commission you again? Yeah, you turned your back on me. You went back to plan B, but I still want you. I still want a brash, foot-and-mouth Christian who gets in trouble too many times, his mouth gets ahead of his head. Peter, I want you. One of the greatest lies the devil tells us is God doesn't want you. And we believe it. And we let guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation rule and reign in our life because we don't hear the call. Peter, feed my sheep. It didn't sink in. Jesus just invited him into something big, really big. Peter didn't even have an idea of how big it was going to be, did he? When he'd be preaching to 3,000, thousands of people, 3,000 got saved on the day of Pentecost. Peter didn't get it. He was puzzled. He was expecting something other than grace. He was expecting, you know, thunder, judgment. But you see, Jesus wasn't going to do that because the thunder and judgment had been dealt with at the cross. The Son of God had taken that for Peter. So Peter was puzzled. He was expecting something other than grace. He never imagined a new call he really didn't expect it. Jesus, he didn't expect for Jesus to believe in him more than he believed in himself. And that's how it is for so many of us. God believes in us more than we believe in ourselves sometimes. This is the God of unimaginable grace. And this is what we see here exemplified with Jesus' interaction with Peter. And so... Jesus gives this call, feed my sheep. He does it three times. It still didn't sink in, though, to Peter. You know, again, Peter was expecting this long, stern talking to. 
Where's the parental posture, the proverbial finger shaking in the face? That's not what Peter got. He got grace. He got recovery. He got redemption. He got reconciliation. No well-deserved dress down, just a second chance. Just rescue. Peter was rescued from himself, his discouragement, his failure, from his fishless old life. Peter was going to catch more people than he ever caught fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Peter's sin had already done a good job of dressing him down. The enemy had already convinced him God didn't want him. But you have Jesus here on the seashore saying, Peter, I love you. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. I want you, Peter. I want you to serve me. And so this is the God of grace. You see, Jesus gave this call to Peter, and what what Jesus was working Peter through is, yeah, Peter had bad behavior. And so many of us, our behavior so many times betray what we truly believe. And in these moments, when Jesus was crucified and after he rose again, Peter was failing in his behavior. But you know what grace does? Grace chooses belief and forgives behavior. Grace chooses belief and forgives behavior. This is, what, this is what God does. God knows that our behavior doesn't match up. That's why he gives us grace through belief, faith. And so my question to you, my friend, is this. Have you seen the real Jesus? Would you recognize him? If you're to walk in these doors today, would you recognize him? Or the expectations you've built around God, would it blind you to the reality of who he is? Would you believe him? Would you follow him? Would you receive him? Jesus wasn't anyone, he wasn't what anyone expected him to be. He was so much more. He was full of grace and truth. He came to rescue man from religion and establish an eternal relationship with his creation. Jesus wasn't just a historical figure or good model for us to follow. He is our Savior, offering to us unimaginable, inexhaustible, life-transforming, call-extending grace. God saying, I know you failed. I know you don't deserve it. If you, that's why it's grace. It's, it's, it's unmerited. It's undeserved. Will you receive this? And so we see how Jesus lovingly embraced the fallen and the failures like Peter. We looked at Peter last week for a little bit in our message, and we look at him again today. It's because so many times we're like Peter. But rather than berating Peter with correction, Jesus bewildered Peter with a renewed commission and gracious call. The real Jesus knows all about us, and yet he graciously calls us to follow him and says that we are a part of his plan in this world. My friends, that's incredible. That changes everything. And so do you see the real Jesus for who he is?